was and still am basically of this young prophet. Um, if you remember, I, I, I just felt like this, this kid comes on the scene on the heels of Haggai and, and it tells us that he's young and I just assume he's probably tall and handsome too. And so you just get intimidated by guys like that, right? And then the way he shares his word, the word that the Lord has laid on, on him, you know, it's like, man, again, not that I'm, I'm no longer intimidated by this book, but I am fascinated that the Lord, fascinated that the Lord has allowed me to get through it. Um, and I, I don't know how you heard it. I know what I shared. I know what I studied. And, and it's interesting because there's so much in this book, and I think that's part of my intimidation with this book and with this young prophet was that I, I, I had never really spent a lot of time in Zechariah. I had, I had read it many times through in my, you know, daily devotions and daily readings. And, and you'd read it and you're going, okay, I, I don't capture the whole thing. But by the grace of God and by his mercy, uh, by his goodness, as, as I got to know this young man, and, and again, this is what I do. When I start studying, when I start digging in, I want to know the guy who's writing it. I want to know why he's writing it, when he's writing it. And so once I started getting to know this young man, and I really felt like I, as I got to know him, I, I saw his sincerity and I saw his, his humility. In that, again, he's following this, this pastor or this other prophet who had already been on the scene, who had some powerful messages, and this guy's coming on the heels of that. And yet both of them know what they're called to do. And because they both know what they're called to do, Haggai knows that he's only going to be around for several months and God's done with him. It doesn't tell us what happens to him, but this guy here, he comes on the scene and he's not overpowering this guy. He knows his place and he comes alongside this guy and they start they start ministering at the same time. And I love that because they work together. And so part of me was, as, as I'm looking at this guy, is like he's submitting to this older pastor, but this al older pastor or, or, or uh, prophet is going, hey, young man, go for it. God's called you. I'm done with this ministry, and I'm, I'm handing it off to you because I have nothing else. This is what God has called me for this time. But he has called you, and, and the word that this guy has is different from Haggai, even though they intercept a few times and they come together a few times when you look at their books. And so the more I got to know this young man, the more I just fell in love with him, as I most of the time do when I'm looking at these people, at these, these writers. And so as I started digging deeper, as I started studying, I got to understand the flow of the book and I got to understand the timeline and that helps a lot when you're digging in and you're trying to figure out all these crazy visions and all these things that they're saying and when is this going on and because we've been in the OT for quite a while and I've been in this time frame from the kings well, well from first and second Samuel to the kings and learning all these dates and I've given you tons of dates but then kind of going into Ezra and and, and Nehemiah and Esther and just kind of seeing all these dates and how these guys came alongside those guys. And now I'm going, oh, I see the picture. If you go into my office, I have this big old timeline about this big. And it just tells you from beginning all the way until today, basically, and all the stuff that's happened. And so I started looking at all these timelines, and I am capturing it more and more. Again, I don't know how good I'm, I'm teaching it. <laughs> I know how, how much I'm studying, <laughs> you know, but I don't know how much you're, you're capturing. But anyway, so once I understood the flow of the eight visions that happened all in one night, if you remember, that the Lord had given it. Uh, given this young prophet from chapters 1 to chapter 6, uh, the storyline started to make sense as to why he was called and why he was called at that time, that particular time that he was there. And so it, it started making sense, which brought about an understanding to me of the timeline of the whole book. As you see, even though the dates of this book take us from about November 520 B.C. to about December 518 B.C., just about two years, about two years, that this kid, this young man, again, I don't know how, how old he was, but I, I think he's young, 
that timeline for two years, God had given him work to do, and he was faithful. He was faithful to stand up in, in, on the heels of this older uh, prophet and preach the word with boldness. Again, he comes on the scene and he just goes after them because he starts off with a call to repentance to these people that should have known better because he's speaking to not only the civic leaders, but he's talking to the religious leaders. And it doesn't tell us a lot about who this kid was, but he came up, and I love how Jeremiah, when he starts off his book, that God sh shared with them, hey, don't be afraid of their faces. You share what I've called you to share. And that's what this, this guy has done. He's come on the scene, and he begins to share what the Lord lays on his heart, but he starts off with a call of rebuke of saying how angry the Lord was with them because of what they had done, because of what their fathers had done. And so, and then he moves right into the visions. Now, as we get into the last part here from chapters 9 on to chapter 14, there are many events that he addresses. And again, trying to capture the timeline for me has been very important. Because all of a sudden, as I'm studying, as I'm looking, as I'm digging in, we start looking that even though this, this is taking place in 520 B.C., November of 520 B.C., he is now sharing about things that will happen because the last portion deals with the prophecies concerning the end of Israel's age and the return and reign of Christ. But the first verse, uh, the first chapters, 9, 10, and 11, have to do with what would happen before his first coming, before the Messiah's first coming. And so he starts dealing with things that would happen 200 years from his date. About 200 years, what would be happening in, 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 in and around Israel. And then he's, he, he jumps a little further to about 400 years of what starts happening, first with, with uh, Alexander the Great and then the Maccabees and, and all the battles that were happening and all the things that were going on there. And then he takes us right to the point where Messiah will be born. And so he takes us 500 years later, 520-some years later, 550 times uh, 50 years later, and he starts talking about the first coming of the Messiah and how he would be rejected. And he goes through that whole motion of what would happen to him because he, the first time he would come, he would be the rejected Messiah. And so capturing all of that, you're going, okay, I get the timeline. Now I understand that when I go back and read it in my daily devotions, when I come across it again, it's going to make a whole lot more sense to me. I don't know about you, but for me it will. And it's all about me. So just so you guys know that. But be that as it may, as we get into chapters 10, 11, oh no, 12, 13, and 14, now he's... He, he's talking about stuff that will happen still in our future. So now he's writing about things that will happen 2,500 years or more later. And so again, trying to capture all of that has been interesting for me. So again, you should be in Zechariah chapter 14. We will finish off the last part of the last section this evening. Again, dealing with the end of Israel's age and the return and the reign uh, this is where we're at, the reign of Christ. And so, Zechariah 14, first three verses. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravaged. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against the nations as he fights in the day of battle. The word behold, as we start this, this chapter, and we've seen it a few times in this book, but the, the word behold is used 14 times in 14 chapters. Not one time each chapter, but several times in, in, in some of the chapters. But he, he's used this word several times. And it carries with it the meaning of low or see. In other words, it's an attention grabber, you know, that, that, that you should pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. 
And so he, he, he again is, is saying, lo, the day of the Lord is coming. And oftentimes, and we've, I've tried to cover this as many times as we've come across that phrase, because the phrase is often in regards to the day of the Lord, to the second coming of Christ. And I think it's important for us to understand and be reminded of it oftentimes, because oftentimes we look at the day of the Lord and we confuse it sometimes as Christians. And we need to keep in mind that we can't confuse the day of the Lord with, with the rapture. The day of his second coming with the rapture. They're two separate things that happen. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we, we read about the day of the Lord and we automatically think rapture time. And it's not anywhere near that. Um, the day of the Lord actually takes place at the end of the seven-year period, the tribulation time, whereas most of us believe, and I'm on, in that camp, that believe that the rapture will happen before the seven-year tribulation. And so he says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. I highlight that phrase, is coming, to remind us of God's faithfulness. You see, as faithful as Jesus was to come the first time, and we're kind of covering this last week with the Passion Week, with Good Friday and, and Easter morning, as faithful as Jesus was 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 to come the first time, he will be just as faithful to come the second time. And it's interesting because, again, he is writing some 500 years before, 520 years basically, before Jesus was even born. And I'm sure when, when they were talking about his first coming, it just seemed like so far out there. And yet, we, here we are 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later from the time of his writing, basically, and his second coming still hasn't come. But as faithful as he was to come the first time, he will be just as faithful to do it again. We can count on that. We can take that to the bank. And I know that, again, for the day of the Lord doesn't really interest us as believers, as Paul says in... in, in um, First Thessalonians chapter 5, I don't need to write to you about those things because that, that's concerning other people, not the church. But yet, as the church, we need to be understanding what all of this means so that we can try to explain it, so that we can understand the signs of the times and to be able to, to converse with people that are interested in end times things. So we should know all about these things. But as faithful as he is to come the first time, he will be just as faithful to come the second time. You see, there are only two times that the Lord Jesus will touch down on earth, in the flesh, basically. That he will stand on the earth, so to speak. And again, the first time he came as a lamb to deal with the hearts of men, spiritually speaking. The second time he comes, he will come as a lion to deal with the physical sin of man. And it says here that, that your spoils will be divided in your midst. And so now he's talking about a time that, that, that there will be this conflict that happens when he comes, when the second coming occurs. He says there will be this, this situation that is, that is happening where your spoils will be divided amongst yourself. When the day of the Lord comes, it will be after the great tribulation, after Israel has gone through all kinds of trouble. In the beginning of the seven-year period, there will be this contract, there would be this covenant, if you will, with the Antichrist and Israel, and everything will seem like everything's hunky-dory and going great. It is amazing. In the middle of those seven weeks, as the prophet Daniel shares with us, he will break that covenant and all hell breaks loose, not just all over the world, but in Israel, towards Israel, towards the Jews in particular. And so after all of that has happened, it tells us that on the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes, their spoils, their possessions will be taken away, will be plundered. And you almost go, that should be the least of their worries at this time. You know, that all their, the, all their properties, all their possessions, it's like, man, I just need to survive here, you know. 
I, I, was, I was having a conversation with somebody and we we're talking about people and, and things. And it's interesting because at the end of your life, you're not going like, man, I wish I would have bought this. You know, you're going, man, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have my family here. So again, the fact that they're going through all this hell right now and their spoils are being divided is like, take them. We don't need that right now, man. We're just trying to survive because of all this turmoil that is happening. And yet it tells us that in verse 2, he says, And I will gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem, to take the city, to rifle uh, the, the houses, uh, to pillage. Um, the, the women will be ravaged or raped or taken advantage of. All these things are going to happen. The city, half of the city will go into captivity. It seems that, that this young prophet here is now looking at this end times view of when Jerusalem will be surrounded and will be attacked by some international, if you will, force that, 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 that have come together to plunder them and to destroy them. Some have suggested that Zechariah was referring to the time when, when the Roman government or the Roman army came in in 70 AD, that that's what he was kind of looking at. But because there was all these people that came against them, and it was terrible destruction on the city, but, but the other part of that is that there was no deliverance for them. Not like what we're going to see here. Even though that all this is coming to pass, the Lord is going to deliver them. In 70 AD, they, they, were, they were torn apart. And so there was no one to come and save them at that time. It was a terrible destruction upon the city and the people. There was none to deliver them. And so it would be difficult to correlate that with 70 AD, but there are some who think that that is what is happening here. It's not to say that in this time, the city, the houses, the women, the, the captivity won't go through it because we, we are told that they will. And again, now we're still looking at something that's in the future. But regardless of what it occurs, what happens, and when it occurs, what we need to remember is that the Lord will always have his hand upon Israel. Even in 70 AD, the Lord had his hand upon Israel. But for some reason, the Lord allowed that to happen, that for almost 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, they were not a nation, but he brought them back to, together to show his amazing power. But his hand has always been upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. In other words, he will gather the nations together. He is the one that's in control. It reminded me of when Ezekiel talked about that he will, uh, I will turn you around and put a hook in your jaw and lead you out. Again, the Lord is the one that pulls people in, even in this time, that the people will come against them. These nations will come against them. I love what, what uh, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's, hearts, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Oftentimes we think that the Lord is, is not in control, and guys, he is always in control. He's never not in control. That, that, that just doesn't compute with who our God is. He always knows what's going on. And when he allows certain things to go on and certain destruction to happen, it's not like he's lost control. He knows exactly what's happening. And again, we look at Israel and the things that, he, that, that they have gone through, and yet his, his eyes has never been off the nation of Israel. Even though we're in the age of grace and in the church age, he still loves Israel. He's still dealing with them. No matter what happens around them, I could guarantee you this, Israel will survive. The, nation, the, the city of Jerusalem will survive as we will see in the end here. God, God always has his hand upon them. Because again, even though all this destruction is going on, it says, but the remnant of the people will not be cut off from the city. There will be a remnant. The word remnant that we've heard often means overhanging and overhanging, i.e., by implication, an excess, superiority, remainder, 
also a small rope as hanging free, abundant, what they leave um, that has left plentiful residue is, is from the Strong's Hebrew. In, in other words, the rest of it, <laughs> what is left. Is, is what the word remnant means. And so what is left, the rest of it, they will, they will not be cut off from the city. And it says in verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Just like Jesus had a triumphal entry to deliver from sin, so Jesus will have a triumphal return to bring deliverance to the remnant of Israel. It says that he fights. And you think, not Jesus. Poor old meek little Jesus. You know, it's like, no, nah, I don't want to fight. It's like, no, he's coming in a different fashion. He's coming as a lion. And just for your information, FYI here, when the Lord goes out to fight, <laughs> he goes out as a warrior. And you know what? He goes out and wins. He has never lost a battle. And, and I know that you could go back and say, oh, no, Pastor, I've read where Israel has lost certain things. It's like, no, he's never lost. He, even when we think that he has he is lost or he's lost control, he has not. He has, always has a purpose. Even when you feel like you're defeated somehow in your life, the Lord is always fighting for you. You know that, right? Even when we think that Satan's got the best of us and we just like, oh, Satan just beats me up. It's like, well, stop letting them beat you up. If, if the Lord fights for us, if he is on, on our side, if he goes out as a warrior, why do you allow the, 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 the defeated foe to have any kind of victory in your life? Again, oftentimes we go through things like this, just like Israel has gone through stuff because of the discipline, because of the disobedience, because of whatever the case is, that he's allowed this to happen, to bring them back, to bring them closer to him. But he has never lost a battle. Again, you want to go to war with God? Guess what? You're going to lose. All the, all the nations of the world want to gang up and fight against Israel? Go for it. We see the end of the picture here. They still survive. The nation of Israel and the city of, of Jerusalem itself will survive into the millennial kingdom. And so I know that oftentimes we can concern ourselves with what's going on in the Middle East and all the people that just want to kill them and decimate them and kill them and, and whatever happens, and it might, but there will always be a remnant that he will fight for, that he will protect, that he will lift up, that they, that, that, that they will have the victory in the end. And so when he goes out to fight, he doesn't go out for a tie. <laughs> he goes out to win. He really does. In verse 4, it says, And in, in that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall, split, shall be split in two. From east to west, making a large valley, half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Then you will flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall uh, reach Azul. Uh, yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord, my God, will come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Verse 8. In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem half towards half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter shall it shall occur. The, the, this portion that we, we look at here 
is the Lord's visible return in glory that will, that will physically change the topography of the land of Israel. As far as the geographical area right there around Jerusalem and what surrounds Jerusalem, I, I think oftentimes when we think of Israel and we think of all these, you know, the, the times that they traveled and all that, we think like, man, they must, and again, they, they didn't have cars. But it's only like 60 miles wide or, or long or, and like 30 miles, not even 30 miles wide. It's not a big, big place. But a lot of that area will be leveled out. A lot of it will change when he comes and he stands on the Mount of Olives. And I think it's important for us to understand because this, this him, him standing on the Mount of Olives is something that has been long awaited for. I think the, the Jews thought that that would happen the first time he came, that he would come in that kind of boldness, that he would change everything. Going back to, to what prophecy says here, that they expected him to come in that kind of fashion, that he would level everything out and the, the rivers would flow and everything would change. But that was at, at his first coming. At his first coming, that wasn't going to happen. Again, he was coming as the lamb. But it will happen the second time. It's interesting because the first time he leaves from the Mount of Olives. If you remember a few weeks ago in Acts chapter, nine, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, it says, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and received, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Who, said, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And so the Mount of Olives has always been important to the Jewish people because they expect their Messiah to come and just level the whole thing and put a new, new valley there. So they're excited about this. Right now, the Kidron Valley is what separates uh, the, the Mount of Olives from the, uh, the Temple Mount. And it runs north, north and south, this valley. And I've often shared with you that it just always reminds me of, of when you're going up Highway, Highway 138 towards Highway 2, that valley that's, that's right there, Wild Horse Canyon right there. That it reminds me of something similar to that because it's about a mile long like that and it just kind of swoops down. And can you imagine if, if tomorrow you drive over there and there's a different valley there? It's like, whoa, what just happened? You know? But that's the way it's going to be because once he sets foot on on Israel or on the Mount of Olives, it will split in two and, and half of it will go to the north, half of it to the south, and there will be this valley that now runs east and west. And it will be used as an escape route uh, for those who are fleeing. And it doesn't say that, that an earthquake caused it. It just says it will be like when the time that they fled the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. It will be that serious. People are going to want to escape for their lives, to save their lives. And then he says in verse 5 at the end there, Thus the Lord, my God, will come and all the saints with you. I love, I love, I love the certainty of this young prophet. He's used... He's used this, this, this phrase, will happen, several times. The day of the Lord is coming, he says. The Lord will go forth. His feet will stand. My God will come. The certainty. Guys, that we would live our lives with that kind of certainty. That, that, that we would live with expectation because if he said it, he will do it. And I know sometimes because of who we are and the things that we battle in our lives, it's like, I don't know, Lord. It's like, man, that we would live with certainty like this young prophet saying, he will do it. He was that certain about it. 
that he wrote about it. And I, I, I believe that there was no doubt in his mind that all of this would come to pass. This young kid would never see it, but he wrote about it as if it would happen right now. And so I love the certainty there. And he says, not only will he come, but all his saints with you or with him. So with certainty, the Lord will do as he has promised. And he won't come alone. It's interesting because in, in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13, it says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In Jude 15 and, uh, 14 and 15, now Enoch, the seventh from, Ab from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among, among of all the ungodly deeds which they have committed in ungodly ways, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And I love what Revelation chapter 19, as we see this picture of him coming back uh, on the horse, and he has this army with him. It says, And the armies of heaven, or the armies in heaven, clothed in, fi in fine linen, white, clean, follow him on white horses. And so he's coming back, guys. He is faithful to do as he has promised. He is always faithful. And so it tells us in 9 and 10, or, or 6 and 7, and let me read it through the, the New Living Translation, verses 6 and 7. It says, On that day, the source of light will no longer shine. Verse 7, Yet there shall be continuous day. Only the, only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal light day or night for the evening time it will still be light and so it seems that after this initial battle Zechariah looks forward to the glory of Jerusalem in that kingdom when Messiah sets it up where, where light that we are used to that guides us you know, that the, the sun and the moon and even these kinds of lights that we have before us will be diminished. There won't be no need for them because God himself will bring his own light. The true light will once again dwell on the earth and his kingdom will be light. And I love the fact that, again, Jesus has told us that he is the light of the world and he will be in and among his creation in the, in the millennial time. In verse 8, it talks about that it shall be in that day that, that rivers, that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and half of it towards the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. Jerusalem will no longer be a dry city, but it will have a glorious river flowing from it. It's interesting because most cities, when they, when they are created, they, they usually are, are around some water. Well, Jerusalem was not like that. Water had to be brought in in, in, in certain canals and in certain ways, but they didn't have a big water supply. The, the, the small little springs that they had couldn't supply the whole city. And so it will, at one point, become a lush city where, where this water, this living water will, will, will flow from it and it will go about 15 miles to the east into the Dead Sea because everything has been leveled out and it will give life to the Dead Sea once again. And so if you remember that whole Dead Sea area, it was a very lush area which is, which is called Zor, where Lot wanted to go pitch his tent because it was so lush and green. And it wasn't until after Sodom and Gomorrah that it became one of the lowest places on the earth, and there was no outlet anymore, and that's where we have the Dead Sea. But it will come to life 
once again as the living water flows to it. And it will also flow about some 30, 35 miles to the west to the Mediterranean Sea. And so there will be water all year around. And again, I, I find it interesting that Jesus, when he came the first time, he referred to himself as being the light of the world and as the living water. And he will establish in his kingdom, when he establishes his kingdom, when he comes a second time, it will come to pass in the literal sense that he is those things. In verse 9 to 15, it says, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramam, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from, the, from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their eyes shall dissolve while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against the neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, silver, gold, and apparel in great appearance, abundance. S uh, such also shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. The Messiah will not only reign in uh, reign as king in Israel, but he will also reign over the whole earth. We've heard that many times. We've sing sing about it that he is the the Lord of all the earth. This worldwide scope of his reign will be supported uh, by those who 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 are now living in the millennial time. He will reign over all the earth. He will reign with a, with a rod of iron. Even though it will be a time of righteousness, he will deal with, uh, with sin that might happen or will occur at that time. Uh, Romans 19.16 says, And he has on his robe and on his thigh written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord... God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Again, he will reign, rule and reign not over, not only over Jerusalem, over Israel, but all the earth. He will be the God of all the earth, and he will reign when he establishes his kingdom. He will be universally recognized as such and worshiped as the one and only true God. All idolatry and false worship will be cut off. Um, if anything like that occurs, it will be dealt with swiftly. It will be taken care of. And the people will recognize the Lord, the name of the Lord. He will be the only one. All, all the land shall be turned into plains, and, and all the inhabitants shall dwell in safety. And when the kingdom is finally set up, They won't need any de natural defenses like mountains in or anything. Everything will be leveled out because their defense now lives in and among them. Jesus being their defense, the one that fights for them. And so all the topography changes because they will now dwell in safety because God, the Lord, will dwell among them. Um, I, I think oftentimes we can concern ourselves with Jerusalem and with the safety of Jerusalem, and we are commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But in the end, guys, Jerusalem becomes the capital of the millennial kingdom. 
And so it survives. Oh, it might not look the way it looks right now, but it will survive because Jerusalem is, is, is God's, king, uh, God's special city. Um, verses 12 to 15, it almost seems like there's a little parentheses here, kind of going back to, to what he was talking about in verse 2 and, and the people that came against Jerusalem to fight against them. And so the section here in, in chapter 14, it, it summarizes that the divine plagues of the enemies, both on man and beast, will come upon them. There will be panic that comes, not that the Lord will panic, but there will be panic from the Lord. And the plunder that has taken place by the Gentile armies will no doubt be returned to the people of Israel when they get all the silver and gold and all the fine apparel back that has been taken from them. When it talks about the the dissolving of, of, of their feet and their eyes and their tongues, uh, many suggest that this could be the effects of some kind of neutron bomb or nuclear bomb that will destroy people but not buildings and things. Um, quite possible. Uh, verses 16 to the end of the chapter here. And it shall come to pass that everyone who was left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord will strike the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved in the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the, the bowls after the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And so when we come to the end here, I, I, I find it interesting because I was having an issue with this whole portion here. And so I had to call my lifeline um, to say, hey, I'm not getting something here. Our brother Mark Matthews that sits back here. I hate him sometimes because he's, um, well, because he, he kind of gives me some perspective. And, and I, 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 I was being challenged here and I called him and we we're on the phone for all this time. And then I see him walk up. It's like, oh, you couldn't just hear me on the thing. You had to come over and kind of shake your head and go, didn't get it right. <laughs> but God bless him anyways. But I was having an issue here because, because I was looking at this. I'm going, okay, I'm not understanding something. And I probably still don't quite grasp it, but he does have different perspectives that he shares. And I love this man. I really do. I, I, I admire him and his intelligence in so many ways. But, but again, the fact that I don't know exactly how this looks, and, 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 and Mark was kind of sharing his perspective in what he believes it looks like, and, and both could be wrong and both could be right, but there are perspectives, you know, that again, there's those who are going to be left. And I was thinking, okay, so there's going to be non-believers that are going to be headed in there because they made it through the tribulation but didn't get the mark. And, and Mark gives me another perspective because, again, from the time that at the end of the, 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 uh, the great tribulation to the time that the kingdom is set up, there's this 75-day period that is there that, that, again, Mark reminds me of the times when Jesus talks about the, the sheep and the goat and the separation. And only the, 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 the goats, the righteous, are the ones that enter in. And that so often, because a thousand years will last. Did I say something wrong? 
Okay, you guys know what I meant, right? Okay, as long as you guys know what I meant, because I'm getting going, and I'm already nervous and sweating like a televangelist because Mark is sitting there, right? So, again, it's a little intimidating. You thought I was intimidated by Zachariah. He's dead and gone. Be that as it may. So I'm having this conversation and trying to figure out who are these who have come that, that are now not wanting to worship the way they're commanded to worship. It's like, wait a minute, we're living under righteousness now. We are in the millennial age. And so, again, if there are no goats that enter in or no non-believers that come into the millennial time, we have a, a thousand-year reign. And so those people are still going to have children. People are going to live for a long, long time, maybe a thousand years. And so again, there's going to be a lot of people on the earth, and I could guarantee you that there will be those, as I've been convinced of, that will not want to worship the way that they are commanded to worship. And I find it fascinating because, again, we, we are taken to the time that after the thousand years are up that Satan is released for, for a while and there will be multitudes upon multitudes who follow after him after living in paradise in the millennial kingdom with Jesus ruling and reigning in righteousness and they will still turn away. And one of the things that my dear brother shared with me is, is the fact that he believes, he thinks, that because the, the, the heart of man will be tested when there is pure righteousness, and the heart of man can still turn from that. And I think it's fascinating because I apply it to today. We are called the righteousness of Christ today. And how is it that we sometimes turn from that righteousness if he has given it to us freely and full of grace? And we sometimes don't desire to worship the way we, were, we are required to worship. Now, what I found also fascinating is that he addresses the, the Feast of Tabernacles. In, in, in uh, Leviticus chapter 23, there are seven feasts or festivals that, that the, the children of Israel were commanded to, 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 to adhere to. And yet, it's only the, the Feast of Tabernacles that is mentioned here that will be exercised or, or celebrated during the kingdom year. And the Feast of Tabernacles reminds us or, or, or it, 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 it commemorates the wilderness experience of the nation of Israel and their wanderings and how God was their provision. God was the one that blessed them bountifully through that time, God was their provision. God took care of them. He gave them manna from heaven. When, when, when there was time to, for harvest afterwards, He abundantly blessed them. And so they will celebrate that in, in the millennial kingdom because all the other feasts like Passover, the, weeks, the, the festival of weeks and atonement and all that, all of that has already been fulfilled by Jesus. This would be the only one that had not been fulfilled by Jesus, but he will in the millennial kingdom because he will be their provision. He will take care of them. He will, he will be everything to them that they need to be, and yet there will be some who do not desire to come and worship. And I find it fascinating that they will not, they will not be supplied with rain. Again, God is the one that supplies everything. He wants to be that in the millennial kingdom. And yet there will be those who desire not to, and they will suffer the punishment. And, and, and again, when we apply it to us, if God has provided everything for us, when we disobey, <laughs> when we decide, well, I don't want to do it God's way. It's not like you lose your salvation or anything, but you miss out on all the blessings and all the provisions that he says, you want to go do it on your own, go do it on your own. When you come up short, I'll still be sitting on the throne. Right? And so again, he reminds us here that he will be their everything. And yet there will still be those who will not desire him to be their everything towards the end there, it seems like. It says that in the end here, in that day, holiness to the Lord will be engraved 
on the bells of the horses and on the pots of the uh, uh, the houses of uh, the the pots of the Lord's houses, and everything will b- basically become common. The, that, that phrase, holiness to the Lord, was, it, was engraved on the high priest's uh, uh, headset. And, and yet, in that time, not that things won't be holy, but everything will, everything will become more common, that even the horses will carry that banner, because the holiness of the Lord will rule and reign in that time. And all the things that, 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 that are common will be just as holy as the holy things. There will not be a differentiation. You can't differentiate from it. You, you won't be able to tell them apart. And so, again, all of these things will come to pass. Let me just close up here where Zechariah ends this prophecy, making it clear that God's ways... Make a way for all of us to enter in. Guys, we, we as Christians, we anticipate the Lord's coming. But not this way. We anticipate Him coming for His church. We anticipate and we live in expectation that He will one day take us out of the way and the age of grace and the age of the church will be done away with and He will go back to dealing with His His wife, if you will, which is Israel. He will deal with them once again. Guys, as faithful as he was to Israel throughout the centuries, back then, as faithful as he has been, even during this church age to Israel, they are still the apple of his eye. He will one day come back and minister to them and he will set up his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. A thousand years is a long time. I, it's hard for us to fathom that. I was talking to Mark yesterday, or I think it was Mark about this too. It's hard to fathom a thousand years for me and for us as Americans because we only have like 240 years of history. But man, there's hundreds of years, thousands of years of history that have occurred. And, and when we're reading the scriptures, sometimes we're reading and we go from one section to the next and we've just covered a thousand years. And it's hard to fathom that. But the, 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 the millennial kingdom will be a thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. It has been promised. It has been spoken of. It will come to pass because he is faithful. He has always been faithful. Amen. Father, thank you for our time, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, for my brothers and sisters who are here. Um, I pray, God, that even the things that we've been able to share tonight, Lord God, I've made some sense of it, to be able to share some of the things, Lord God. I pray that their hearts would be um, just open to desire to even dig deeper, Lord, themselves. Father, I love the fact that, Lord, we have one another to turn to. I love the fact, Lord, that we can ask each other questions and we can uh, even challenge each other, Lord God. And I praise you for that, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for their kindness and their grace towards me as well, Lord God, of allowing me to stand before them. Lord, I know that you've called me to this, but I just thank you that these guys come. And I pray your blessing upon them. Lord, whatever they're battling with or whatever they're dealing with, Lord, that you would meet them right where they're at, Lord God, that you would be their provision, that you would be their 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 defense lord you will be the one that fights on their on their on their side lord god and so minister to them right where they're at lift them up encourage them we ask in jesus name